Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It was never a question of if the old levy protecting the 95% Latino farm town of Pajaro would break. It was just a matter of when. A fix has been on the table since 1966, but still, the old levy remained. And last Tuesday, an elevated Pajaro River busted a hole in the levy and displaced thousands of people. Why hadn't the levy been upgraded if everyone knew it was deficient and destined to fail? The answer to that question reveals so much about California's flood protection system. There are too many levees to properly fix, the climate is changing, and for decades, the less money your community had, the less protection you were going to get. We dive into how these life-altering decisions are made after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There isn't enough money to bring all of California's levees up to a standard that would keep communities safe for the foreseeable future. Not at the local level, not at the state, not with the feds. That's the core problem. So then the federal government does most of this kind of upgrade work, has to figure out how to allocate scarce resources. A big part of that is determining how bad the losses would be if a levee break occurred. And like schools and many other local services, that is hugely dependent on property values. Expensive homes raise the cost in the Army Corps of Engineers' cost-benefit analysis of a levy break. So wealthier places are more likely to get levy upgrades, or at least they have been. Is that fair? For decades, environmental justice advocates have argued that the answer is no and have tried to rally the federal government to consider a broader range of costs and benefits. They've been winning that fight, as we'll hear, and the Pajaro River levees should finally get a fix, but it will come too late for the people sleeping on cots or in their cars having been displaced by the flood. I'm going to talk about what's to come, but first let's bring in our guests who can help us understand what happened in the town last week and also for the last many years. Here to chat this morning, we've got Luis Alejo. He's a Monterey County supervisor. Welcome. Good to be here this morning. We've also got Mark Strudley, Executive Director of the Pajaro River Flood Management Agency. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we've got Barbara Berrigan Parilla, Executive Director of Restore the Delta. Welcome, Barbara. Good morning, Mark. Thank you. Um, let's start with you, Luis. Um, just tell, give us a quick update on what's actually happening in the town of Pajaro right now. Well, there's a lot... Um... There's a lot going on, uh, obviously, in our community. 
for the nearly um, 3,000 residents of the community of Pajaro. This has uh, been very um, challenging, very frustrating, and uh, the pain that has been inflicted by having to evacuate their homes um, every day. And while they still have to take care of their families, they still have mm -hmm. to work, um, it makes has made their lives very challenging. And so we've deployed resources to try to make this things easier. Um, our shelter, at, our principal shelter at the fairgrounds has grown to almost 450 people. Yes. The remaining folks have are staying with friends and relatives. Um, otherwise, they, they end up uh, coming to our shelter. Uh, but we were very fortunate to yesterday to try to organize a mass with Father Victor Prado of the Assumption Church that was also flooded in Pajaro. Uh, that meant a lot to the local residents, having some spiritual uplifting during these challenging times. And we also had some community groups bring some music, mariachi entertainment, everything that we could do to help make their um, um, experience having to live at a shelter a little better. Yeah. I mean, what are you thinking about how long people are going to be in these shelters and, you know, or, or with family and friends? Well, the what we've got so far, the sheriff is uh, trying to give uh, an estimate. Um, he's hoping that um, at least the community might be able to reopen maybe at the end of this week. It depends how all these inspections are going. We have some infrastructure problems with the main sewage line. Mm. pg is doing work. Um, so it really depends on what they find and if it's safe to go in. Uh, but um, yesterday's report was that the, the sewer might not be fixed until next week. So we're taking it day by day, but we're trying to give a, 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 a at least somewhat of an estimate of our residents. But just because they're allowed to return to Pajaro will not mean they're allowed to um, um, habitate their homes if they have been red tagged or if there's some serious environmental health or um, hazard issue for their family. So it's going to be a process of educating the community what happened uh, when they could return into the community and why with the work that we're doing now just to be able to reopen. And then secondly, even if they're allowed to go home, uh, what potential dangers are there for them and their families? Many who have many small children and there's also many seniors that uh, live in Pajaro. Yeah. Hey, Mark Stredley, uh, executive director for the uh, Flood Management Agency there. How are you feeling about the repairs to the levy, I mean, given that there are more storms on the way, you know, even uh, maybe even tomorrow, um, is that isn't it a place where it's going to hold if the river rises again? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident that we don't have a lot to worry about with these future storms within the forecast period. Um, and I'll, I'll caution this by saying, you know, we obviously don't know what's going to happen, say, a month from now. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of the storms that are coming that we know about in the forecast this week, um, they are atmospheric rivers, but they're moderate to minor. Mm -hmm. um, we have river forecasts that tell us fairly accurately how high the water level is going to get in the river, and it's not expected to re-engage the site uh, where the breach occurred. It's not supposed to interact with the uh, what's called the levee prism, the, the, the levees themselves supposed to stay within the channel. Um, so there are intermittent repairs, uh, excuse me, interim repairs that are going on. And then there's going to be more permanent type repairs that are instituted by the Army Corps um, over the coming months to coming years to, to fully button up the sites that were damaged. Yeah. You know, I was wondering about that. You know, we're going to talk later about the full kind of history of these levees and in particular the upgrades that are coming that you guys had, had already won but hadn't been able to implement yet. Um, does this breach do anything to those plans? Like, does it make it harder to actually end up upgrading this system over the next, you know, five years? Well, um, 
you know, this this country has an interesting habit of responding to disasters rather than responding in a more proactive manner. And so despite the fact that what has happened this community has been so incredibly unfortunate and, and a little later than we had hoped, given the, the timeline that we're following with the Army Corps, we're all really hoping that this event can add a little more fuel to the fire with the Army Corps to implement this project mm. sooner than we originally anticipated. So that that is the only silver lining to this whole aspect is that we're hoping this is just going to really um, push us into implementation sooner than we than we originally thought. Mm. Uh, Barbara Bergen Padilla, executive director of Restore the Delta. I wanted to ask you, I mean, people may be asking, like, why are people living in this floodplain? I wanted you to maybe talk about people who don't really have a choice of, of where they end up uh, living or, or, you know, have a very limited housing choices in some of our agricultural areas. Well, what's happened over, um, you know, decades uh, is that policies around, you know, flood and water supply management, they started with the gold rush um, uh, with uh, racism that was built into redlining where people lived, uh, how water rights were controlled, um, how um, ma- lands were managed for um, large industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted that, you know, towns right now like Ellensworth and Porterville, Ellensworth has uh, a flooding emergency happening also right now. Mm-hmm. Um, these towns didn't have adequate water supply. Now they've, the people that live there are living in floodplains uh, because of these discriminatory practices. And we have the same problem um, in South Stockton, which is a very large environmental justice area that is urbanized and is one of the most dangerous flood points in California. Mm. Right. Like, I think I read 17,000 homes there in Stockton, right, that might be in, in danger of severe flood. Uh, yes, they're under, th- uh, you know, f- extreme threat with arc storms. And also then we receive the high tides that back up into the Delta with storm surge. So 17,000 homes, 54,000 residents, one of the most dangerous flood points in the Army Corps is nearly, uh, you know, two decades behind in getting the floodplain restoration projects that need to be done um, uh, and levy upgrades. And then to complicate matters with Army Corps delaying uh, we had a budget cut uh, with the Newsom administration this year mm. uh, that defunded some of that floodplain restoration work that's essential to taking pressure off the levees. Yeah. Uh, Supervisor Alejo, returning to uh, Pajaro and the economic implications of this flood for, for people there, you know, we've seen in these other floods um, that it's been impossible to work the fields. And so then farm workers don't get paid um, what, what can be done to help people whose, you know, not only homes are flooded, but whose livelihoods have also been sort of inundated? Yeah, there's there's two categories of, of flood victims. Obviously, those who damaged their homes um, in Pajaro and lost their cars and their businesses. But then there's that larger group, many who are also Pajaro residents themselves and, and the agricultural workers not being able to have any work. So, so some of these Pajaro residents are double hit, not having the homes and homes and cars damaged, but also not being able to go back to work because there's tens of thousands of acres of farmland throughout Monterey County, and um, that 
are not farmable at this point because mm. our food safety laws require these um, flooded fields to sit fallow for up 30 to up to 60 days. Mm. So that really delays um, being able to replant in those fields and getting people back to work. So that is why we've been very proactive from day one since the storm started um, um, last weekend. Uh, we reached out to the governor's office asking for help for those uh, flood victims in Pajaro that would not qualify for FEMA. And then the larger group of agricultural workers who, who if they're undocumented, don't qualify for unemployment insurance and will have no means to pay the rent, put food on the tables or provide for their families. And what what's the status of those? You said you put in for it. I mean, does that mean that that money is going to come or like indications are good or we, ha- we haven't got it. We haven't got a firm commitment from the governor yet, but we have reached out to the California Latino Legislative Caucus, which has a very significant number of members in Sacramento. They supported Monterey County's request to, for assistance in those for, for those mm-hmm. two particular categories of flood victims uh, that was sent to the governor, I believe, just two days ago. And um, I know more of those types of letters and appeals are are um, are coming um, um, to the governor as well. But for now, we need that follow up from our uh, state legislators, both on the Senate side and the assembly side, to make sure that California can make an allocation in the next few days, we hope, to be able to help these victims. We, we know that um, a declaration of emergency that would deploy FEMA to the ground here is we're still waiting for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so then once once they do, we will have we'll open up a local assistance center for those who are eligible but we're hoping that at that time we could have the state funds also um, ready to help those who are not eligible for FEMA assistance. And the larger question on how can we help those who um, um, who will be out of work because of the flooding. This Tuesday, actually tomorrow, at a Board of Supervisors meeting, I had already asked for a small rent subsidy program for those farm workers who, who are out of work because of the January storms. So mm-hmm. we're looking at to allocate at least 400000 to get a small program started because we have less, uh, we have less um, financial means to do that, yeah. but we are trying to do something. But we hope that getting this program started, if we can get more funds from the state, we could do it at a much larger scale, yeah. not through us, through our nonprofit partners. We're, we're talking about the broken levee and flooding in Pajaro. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the flooding in Pajaro, which resulted from a breach in a degrading levee near the town. And we're talking about our aging flood control system in general here. We're joined by Luis Alejo, Monterey County Supervisor, Mark Strudley, Executive Director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency. 
Barbara Berrigan Parilla, executive director of Restore the Delta. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Are you or somebody you know impacted by the flooding down on the border of the Monterey and Santa Cruz County in Pajaro? Please give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Maybe your community outside of there is threatened by an aging levy. We'd love to hear your story. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. Um, Mark Stradley, I want to get a little bit on the history of this levy system. I think it's important for people to kind of understand how long some of these processes have been going on. Um, this, the levies, as I understand, in Pajaro were built in 1949, right? And almost from the jump, we've been trying to repair them. Yeah, so they, they were, that's correct. They were built in 1949. It was the Christmas floods of 1955, and again, the floods in 1958 that overwhelmed those levees. Um, they were originally built to what was thought to be protection against the so-called 50-year flood. Um, it turns out that, that that wasn't quite correct. Um, they were also built to, you know, engineering standards that are, are no longer at play. Um, they were largely built from material that was basically scraped from the, the river. And um, the engineering practices in the 40s were far different than they are now. And so not only are these levees really old at this point, but they're, they were fragile from the start. So they failed in 1955 and 58, and that prompted the Army Corps to start studying them in uh, 1960s, which led to the 1966 authorization to reconstruct the levees. There were plans put forward in the 70s originally um, that were actually rejected by the community for various reasons. Um, and th at that point, the Army Corps stepped back and started focusing uh, on- Said basically, if you don't want us, fine, we'll go somewhere else. Yeah, well, and, and they, they started shrinking the scale of the project to something more very specific to the city of Watsonville, um, which did experience flooding in 82 and 86, but then it was the 1995 flood, which was almost a mirror image of what we're seeing now that really re-engaged the community as well as the Army Corps and stepping back and realizing that the whole system does need some type of treatment. And so since the 90s, we've been uh, in kind of the latest phase of the feasibility or, or planning phase of the project that finally culminated in 2019 with authorization to move forward into design. And we're in the design phase right now. This is just all coming a couple decades, if not more than that, too late. Mm, yeah. You know, uh, Supervisor Alejo, it's kind of heartbreaking to me that, you know, this process was finally starting to move, you know, with this 2019 authorization and then you have this levy break. I mean, how are you feeling about pushing this process across the, the finish line, you know, after this tragedy has occurred? Well, I'm, I'm originally from Watsonville on the other side of the river. Um, I grew up a block from the Pajaro River itself as a young mm -hmm. child. So this is something that eventually going into politics, we've tried for decades to try to get the attention and the History of marginalized communities, communities of color is as old as time in our country, unfortunately. We have a community of San Lucas down in South Monterey County that has been struggling for over 11 years just to get clean drinking water. 
Um, so those stories even continue to this day um, that uh, some of the times our, our state and federal agencies don't move fast enough to bring solutions for the poorest residents of our state. Um, but finally, to see this new agency in so much turnaround in the last two years, it was gave, gave us hope uh, that the, finally the federal um, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the state were willing to put um, funding where the words are. And, and that's why we formed this new flood regional management agency that Dr. Strudley leads. And uh, there's we have a plan now, money is coming, but we've been, because of our past experience, we told the governor um, when he came that we need to follow through from beginning to end, not give us partial funding at the beginning, but if tough times come up down the road to not fully um, keep its commitment to give the full funding for this particular project. The second part <clears throat> is that the permitting takes so long um, that we hope that we could um, expedite that permitting with our state and federal agencies so that we could actually start breaking ground and getting the construction started on the levy. That's what people want to see. Um, I, we know it's a long process, and we hope that this levy could hold up when the next major storm comes through, because we know with climate change, the storms are getting stronger, the water is getting higher in our rivers, and it poses a greater threat to the to those who could least afford uh, the damage. Hey, uh, Monterey County Supervisor Luis Alejo, we're going to let you go so you can get back to, uh, you know, <laughs> helping people out on during this uh, crisis time. Thank you so much for for joining us this hour. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm going to add uh, another voice into the conversation as well. Lisa Krieger is a science writer for the San Jose Mercury News and the Bay Area News Group has a big story out ju just out uh, in the last 24 hours about exactly this uh, this topic of how flooding, how levy construction funds are uh, divvied up. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you, Alexis. Um Lisa, I, I wanted to ask, you've been reporting on the kind of the changes in the way that the Army Corps has been evaluating some of these projects, right? Like we were not able to get stuff done for a town like Pajaro or like a town you reported on, uh, Hamilton uh, City up north. And now we have been. So what's changed in the way that the the state and the Army Corps are evaluating these kinds of projects? Um, yeah, thank you. And, and as we've discussed you know, if you want to win funding, you have to prove that for every dollar spent on the project, there's a dollar of benefit. That's essentially the equation. So historically, there, there are six factors of which really the one that's been prominent has been property values. Um, so these the highest priority for replacing structures and building levees is going to the affluent communities. But what has shifted, and this came out of largely the Biden administration, although it started earlier, um, executive orders basically saying and Congress basically saying you need to evaluate other benefits as well. So increasingly they're looking at environmental benefits. So um, this is where the equation really shifted for a place like Hamilton City, which teamed up with the Nature Conservancy, which is probably the richest environmental group in the nation and and really smart strategy and reimagining re um, the benefit that a levy could create. Um, so, so, you know, there, there are these six factors and it's really tilted the scales, giving weight to the environmental benefit, which makes these smaller and rural and more disadvantaged communities um, have some advantages when it yeah. actually comes to competing for funding. This, this can't be done everywhere, of course, um, but what, just for those of us, those who haven't read our story, um, what's 
really wonderful about the Hamilton City story, which is very analogous to Pajaro in a lot of ways. Um, with the Nature Conservancy, they bought up the Nature Conservancy bought land with funds that the state had to create um, a floodplain, basically. Mm -hmm. So they moved mm -hmm. the levee way back from the river. Um, this is an old levee. It was built out of sand to protect a sugar beet manufacturing plant that no longer exists. Um, and then created this giant floodplain. So when the Sacramento River comes down furiously, and then it spreads out and it loses its fury. And mm -hmm. and there could be really downstream protection as well for the city of Sacramento. So tons of benefits and a wonderful, wonderful story. Barbara, um, in your work with Restore the Delta, are you seeing that these kinds of, you know, where people are trying to show this broader array of benefits so that you know, communities that are now oftentimes called environmental justice communities, that is to say oftentimes poorer and browner communities, are able to make the case to the Army Corps of Engineers in a different way? Like, are you also seeing that play out in other places? Um, fortunately, we have great uh, leadership at the San Joaquin County Flood Control um, Agency. Um, Chris Elias, the new director there, has been able to make headway with the Army Corps of Engineers uh, one to move up that levee improvement project and possible floodplain outlet for those 17,000 homes in an area called Van Buskirk. Um, we are also working with um, our flood control agency and bringing in other partners for other uh, restoration projects. Proposed uh, really to take the pressure off the San Joaquin system is the uh, the Paradise Cut project. There's another one further down on the sand or further upstream rather on the San Joaquin at Mossdale Track. Those are massive floodplain projects, um, kind of like the Yellow Bypass. And they're mm. essential because they take the pressure off of levees. You have to upgrade your levees to the highest possible standards, but there will be so much water uh, you know, with forecasted arc storms in the decades to come that you also want to get that water you know away from the levees and in, in, in particularly in the san joaquin valley there's this wonderful environmental benefit because if you get that water into floodplains you have environmental benefits you have recreational benefits for communities that are really underserved in terms of public lands you have the potential for fish restoration uh for salmon runs and also, you know, to really augment and uh, recapture groundwater supplies uh, for the dry times when groundwater is needed. So let me ask this then. I mean, I, when I hear this and, I, you know, I have actually been up to Hamilton City where Lisa was reporting from and you you see the project playing out. You hear about the, the array of benefits that are coming in. So what's actually stopping this from happening? Like who's on the other side of this saying, actually, let's not put money here. Let's not captured these other benefits? I think part of the problem um, is that often when we interface with government agencies, we will sometimes be asked, well, what about political leadership? And particularly in this section of the Delta, we are seeing a stronger shift at the moment in political leadership as to why these flood uh, management projects are necessary. Uh, part of it also is education. Um, Ironically, here we live surrounded by water, but many of the most impacted communities can't access that water. They see levees, but they don't recreate on it because public access has really been um, limited. So it, sometimes it's hard to move a community 
to advocate uh, mm-hmm. for something it doesn't get to interact with. And then the last part is that um, San Joaquin County is the fastest growing area in California. Uh, we are growing at 13% a year right now in terms mm-hmm. of population. So you have new people moving into these communities because housing is affordable, but they don't understand the flood threat. They're Mm -hmm. not connected to water or flood planning because that's always been kept, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, separate by small districts. So you have to go through a constant education process here, not only on to be prepared for the flood threat, but what kind of long-term planning is needed. We're you know, talking about. Just, um, add oh, Alexis. oh yeah. You know, it's, Go a, ahead, it's a competitive process to get money, and there's a limited pot of money. Um, so that's what's facing us. I also, um, yeah, that's that's the challenge. And the Army Corps, to be fair, you know, prior to this six-factor equation that they used. Um, it was just earmarking, right? So the money went to whoever had the loudest voice and whoever had political influence. And this this methodology they came up with was really an effort to be as fair as they could. Um, but the problem is because economic value is really easy to measure. You know, you can put a price right. on property values. So they ended up, you know, overweighting that. And it's also a lot easier to compare projects if you can use economic value and just um, so... It was all good intentions, but that unintentionally had this benefit of, of disadvantage, disadvantaging certain communities. So thanks. We're talking about our levy system and specifically some the flooding in the town of Pajaro, which had a levy breach last Tuesday. We're joined by Lisa Krieger, who's a science writer for the San Jose Mercury News, Barbara Barragan Parilla, who is executive director of Restore the Delta, and Mark Strudley. Executive Director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency. Earlier, you might have heard Monterey County Supervisor Luis Alejo. Um, do you have questions about the way that our levy system works? You can give us a call. It's complicated. Many thousands of miles and our flood control systems here are really important to the state, but kind of kept out of uh, sight, as you heard from Lisa. You can give us a call with those questions. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is KQED Forum. Let's uh, let's get to some calls here. We have, uh, is it Blanca? Oh, it's Bianca. Bianca and Pengrove. My apologies. Go ahead. Hey there. No worries. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to flag a current recommendation in the legislature that's actually working its way through the budget process right now, um, which would essentially create um, an excluded workers program to provide unemployment benefits to workers that are currently excluded from UI. Um, And this would significantly impact a lot of the the agricultural workers who are currently out of work, you know, helping them Mm. um, obtain the funding that they need to pay their rent um, and and continue to, you know, make those those essential payments that they need to 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 survive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bianca. I also um, for those who are interested in what's happening with um, farm workers as well. We actually have uh, Farida Jabala Romero. Um, has a story on kqed.org. Um, if you go to today's show on forum, um, you can find a link for how to how to help people. Um, so you can um, see some of those things in addition to the political considerations. Um, thank you for that, uh, Bianca. Um, 
Mark Strudley, uh, executive director of Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency, is the current plan on the upgrading of the levy in Pajaro, does it do everything that you need it to do, or are there still some things that are that are missing from the, the current plans? Yeah. Um, interestingly, all the locations that failed um, are actually not included in the federally authorized project. So mm. there were three main com- places where, where we had damage occur. Obviously, the breach site um, upstream at the, the upper end of the levee system on the Monterey County side of the river. That is um, upstream of a improvement that's planned by the Army Corps where they're going to essentially set back the levees up to about two-thirds of the way between the town of Pajaro and the levee breach site. Mm-hmm. And then they were going to build what's called a tieback levee, which is basically a dam across the floodplain. And um, so so specifically, the location of the breach isn't actually included in the federal mm-hmm. program. And then the damage that occurred as that floodwater moved across the floodplain and uh, through a notch below Highway 1 and damaging Highway 1 and the levee that passes underneath the highway, that location is also not included as part of the authorized plan because the authorized plan stops at Highway 1 and doesn't include any improvements to mm-hmm. Um, kind of the the nexus with Highway 1 and moving downstream to the ocean, where there still are um, levees that were built in the 40s. These pieces were excluded um, from the authorized project based on the economic justification process that that Lisa Krieger is describing with the benefit-cost ratio. We will be asking for those pieces to be put back into the project, but the reason that at least at the local level, why we agreed with those limitations to the project is because we were informed that, you know, given the prioritization process, the limitations and funding, that if we were going to authorize a project at all, meaning this is the core saying, if we're going to authorize a project at all, it's going to have limits to it. And if you're going to accept anything at all from us, this is it. And so recognizing that we can't do any project without federal funding, we had to accept that solution. Mark, I want to talk more about this when we get back from the break. We're talking about the levee system protecting Pajaro as well as those protecting other areas of our state. Joined by Mark Stradley, Executive Director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency. Barbara Barragan Paria, Executive Director of Restore the Delta. And Lisa Krieger, science writer for the San Jose Mercury News. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the flooding in Pajaro and the levee systems that protect our cities and agricultural areas. We're joined by Lisa Krieger, science writer for the San Jose Mercury News, Barbara Barragan Padilla, executive director of Restore the Delta, and Mark Strudley, executive director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency. You know, before the break, Mark, you were talking, you're describing what's left out of the current plan to upgrade the levee system near Pajaro and Watsonville, which is just across uh, the river. I, am I understanding you correctly that in the current in the current plan, even after it goes through, all the hundreds of millions of dollars are spent to upgrade this system, that this exact same thing could happen again because Pajaro isn't, isn't protected? Or will that other levy upgrade work also serve to protect the town, at least in some way? So if we had a breach at about the same location after this project is built, the town of Pajaro would be protected. It's just that uh, there is a swath of floodplain upstream of the town of Pajaro largely unpopulated for the most part, but still critical to the, you know, agribusiness economy of the region that would be affected. Mm. Um, but there are pieces of this levy on the Santa Cruz side as well, upstream of the city of Watsonville that are not included in the authorized plan. And mm. should there be a breach on the Santa Cruz side in the future, even post-project, if that breach is large enough, it could go actually into the city of Watsonville. I, I did want to go back to some of the comments that, that Lisa and Barbara were, and specifically Lisa, that was talking about with the benefit-cost ratio and Hamilton City and those mm -hmm. considerations, if I may. It's it's yeah. particularly challenging um, to navigate the process on these projects, particularly with the Army Corps. So Hamilton City was in a position to kind of reformulate their plan during the feasibility phase and away from strictly this, this uh, economic justification based on property values to environmental benefits. And at Pajaro, we weren't able to do that because we wanted to leverage the congressional authority that we had from 1966, which was specifically a single purpose flood risk management project. It takes effort to go typically from the planning phase into the design phase, and it usually takes an act of Congress. In our case, we could leverage the 1966 authorization, so we wanted to keep it that way. Um, but you know, the main thing in terms of who's on the other end limiting projects moving forward, limiting which benefits are calculated, it was it's really been this ongoing conversation hmm. at the federal level about um, what's called the principles, requirements, and guidelines, basically values that are allowed or disallowed to mm -hmm. come into the calculus of the benefits calculation. That's in the process of changing right now. It's just, um, it, it should have happened earlier than it's happening now. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Let's get to another caller. Um, Freddie in Redwood City, welcome. Hello. Hey, Freddie, thanks for calling. All right, listen, I just wanted to comment uh, years ago, I heard a quote from a, a gentleman who was a director of the levy system up around Sacramento. And uh, to quote him, he said, there's only two types of levies, those that have failed and those that will fail. Yeah. Our whole attitude towards this situation is we'll have to learn to dance around the climate and, and the weather system unless we're willing to stop 
and change our entire attitude about climate control. Hey, Freddie, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that. I mean, the, another uh, way of putting that, we've had Erica Guys on, another writer uh, who wrote a book where the title is Water Always Wins. Uh, another, way, another way of framing that. Um, you know, Mark, I wanted to ask you this. Given, given that reality, that eventually the water wins in, in these cases unless we rebuild and we do all these things, how specifically did this levy fail? And does it tell us anything about how the other pieces of that levy system down there might fail in the future? Well, um, I mean, there's, as a flood control manager, you always need to be looking several decades into the future. So it, it is largely true, kind of the statement that, you know, there's levies that have failed and there's levies that will fail under the specific caveat that you've got to have decadal planning at play so that you don't get to the point where your levy is failing if it hasn't failed already. And the challenge that we face with gargantuan projects like this and the funding limitations that we have is trying to pre-position those projects as you're building a new project, you're already looking 50 years down the road about when you're gonna need to replace the system again. Mm -hmm. And so it presents a real challenge um, because it's a moving target. You don't know exactly what landscape um, figuratively, you're going to be walking into 50 years from now, and it's ultimately going to be somebody else's problem because whoever is dealing with it at this point is likely going to be in retirement by the time the system is um, getting close to replacement. Um, but you know, the system that we have now is one of the lowest has one of the lowest levels of flood protection in the state for a, mm -hmm. a levy project. It has like eight year storm level protection, so. It's far below what was originally envisaged. Um, it's far below the target um, for what we need here in the state with so-called 100-year level of flood protection. So that that is the challenge yeah. that's in front of Paha right now. Just wanted to note for people, that just means like, you know, within you could expect within a decade to have another flood um, that would uh, that would go beyond the protections around Pajaro. Um Lisa, I, I wanted to uh, throw a comment from one of our question from one of our listeners to you. Matt writes, is it too simple to think we might just add time, use time as the driving factor to rebuilding our levees? If a particular levy has been identified as needing a refresh for, say, the last hundred years, that one's next in the playlist. If 99 years, that one plays after that, et cetera, et cetera. It, would that work better than the more complex system that has been developed over the years between the Army Corps and the state and local municipalities? It's a great question. I'm, I mean, I, clearly time alone uh, doesn't address it because some older level levies can hold up if they're better made or they're feeling less stress and some of the newer ones um, may be failing um, just because they weren't designed well and, and don't have capacity. Uh, but that's it, an interesting approach. I don't know if you, if you reference, I think you referenced this at the top, Alexis, there are, um, basically almost 1,800 levy systems throughout California. Mm -hmm. And the Army Corps analysis was really interesting as to which ones are characterized as high risk. Um, and as we mentioned, it's not just construction, but it's also the property, it's value. value. Mm -hmm. For readers who live in Santa, my, my area, Santa Clara County, um, probably remember the floods that used to routinely hit downtown San Jose. Um, we had an old levy there. Right now, we've got 
there's a $350 million project that is uh, protecting the city. And then a newer $260 million project that's also protecting the city. And last Tuesday, when we were getting all that rain, that channel was at 20% of capacity. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like it was Guadalupe River for the folks mm-hmm. who live down there. Um, it's an example, just, I, this isn't addressing the question, but it's an example of what new, well-done levy systems can do. And San Jose is protected right now. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a marvel of engineering. Yeah. Um, let's get to uh, a caller, Tom in uh, Mariposa. Welcome. Hey, thanks very much. Good morning. Um, I called to say uh, this is a regional story, and, and uh, Pajaro and, uh, and the Monterey is in coastal range watersheds. And so on Mariposa, where I've lived for a long time, it has more snow and water than I have ever seen. And it's coming downhill. It's going to come downhill, and the and the Delta, the San Joaquin and the Sacramento are going to get slammed. They just have not ever seen the kind of water, and the and the storms are violent, as as we've read in the papers. And when that water comes downhill, um, the strain on the existing systems, the dams, the flood control, the levees, the Delta, the Delta levees, all that kind of stuff, is going to be a remarkable. I mean, it's a great story, but uh, people ought to. It's People scary, are ready though. for uh, another challenge that's it's Pajaro uh, writ large. Yeah. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for that. I mean, Barbara, from from your position at Restore the Delta, like, how do you make sure that everybody I'm sure that that all the flood control people who are working up there, everyone who is 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 like is seeing the snowpack is seeing the, just the amount of water that's in the mountains waiting to come down and is worried. So um, how are you feeling about things? Well, we've already had two uh, small evacuations along the San Joaquin River, and we are at dangerous levels uh, at Vernelis, which is outside the Delta on the San Joaquin River. We're nervous. We're not going to be out of this situation for months. Uh, You know, it depends how the snowpack melts, uh, how rapidly, uh, you know, how rapidly it warms up, how rapidly it melts. And then, you know, where I'm at in the Delta, I'm on the San Joaquin Riverside, but we also have major releases coming out of Orville Dam right now. They were uh, releasing water at um, 35,000 cubic feet per second yesterday. So you have, granted, you have, you know, the Yolo Bypass, which affords protection for the north end of the Delta, but still you have a lot more water moving through the system. And when you combine the two rivers together where the mixing is, um, you know, we're, we're going to be probably watching levees and, um, you know, under uh, flood watch all the way into June. Jeez. Um, let's bring in Joanne in Sonoma. Welcome, Joanne. Hi, thank you. Uh, I want to make two points. One is I grew up on a small mm. farm in the Pajaro Valley. Every year we waited for the levees to fail because we had seen it every year. I don't live there anymore. And I watch around rain time, and we do have rain, because I believe that levees or the bridge is going to go out. Mm. I am not a scientist, but it was very obvious that this was an unattended to, unconcerned area. And it's a failure that both Monterey County officials and Santa Cruz County officials, in my opinion, are responsible for, let alone the feds. I do want to make a pitch, however, for a nonprofit community organization that works in this area and has worked for generations. Its name is 
Pajaro Valley loaves and fishes. And if anybody wants to make a direct contribution to these families, that's my suggestion. I support them. Mm. They're reliable. And they know how to respond to a community. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Joanne. I, you know, Mark, I, I, Mark Stradley, I wanted to go to you on this. I mean, it's, it's hard because there are so many jurisdictions. There are so many different powers, big and small, at play. And yet it all kind of comes down to an agency like yours to end up finding the money to rebuild the, the levees and actually do, doing the work. Um, do you feel like it was unattended to or it was more gridlocked? Well, there's been some pretty acute challenges in raising sufficient funding within the community to oversee the levee system and the river channel. Um, In particular, the zones. So historically, the the, the two counties were involved and, and actually to this day are still involved in maintaining the levee system. The Monterey County side with the really small population in Paro just does not have a very large tax base. And I know that it's been really difficult to raise sufficient funding to oversee the levy system to the standards that it really needs to be maintained at. Those challenges were on the Santa Cruz side too, but more acutely on the Monterey side. But one reason we created this new joint powers agency was to condense all that activity under one roof and provide efficiencies that way instead of having two different entities on either side of the river doing the maintenance work um, to just have one. The other thing is it allowed us to um, approach the community under Proposition 218 for the creation of what's called a benefit assessment district to raise additional funds for that maintenance work. And that was successful because A, it was needed, and because B, we needed to provide an assurance to the Army Corps so that they could build this project. And that assurance basically says we have the capability and the financial wherewithal to oversee this levy system if you build it for us. And so the community stepped forward under that uh, under that notion to support this. Um, but it is a two-part story. It's not just the maintenance. It's the need for many decades to build this new levy system. And we have incredible support coming from the feds and the state, albeit it's it's um, we wished it had come sooner. But this is a you know a half a billion dollar project, and the whole price tag for the project is going to ultimately be paid for by the federal and state government, yeah. um, which is unheard of. Um, so all the community has to do is support the operations and maintenance of the project, which is a much smaller ask. Yeah. So I've um, got a quick question, Alexis, if this is okay, and this is for Mark. I'm looking forward with climate change that we'll be delivering bigger storms, wetter storms. Um, Mark, are the, is the engineering for the levees built for today's climate, or are we modeling for tomorrow's? Are we, can we build now for overcapacity, essentially? Yeah, we, we, we can. The largest flood of record that we've seen in the system to date was actually in the 1998 flood, which was a 28 and a half year recurrence interval storm. So we all talked about this 100 year level protection or 100 year flood. That was a 28 and a half year flood. So the system is designed to withstand a 100 year flood. Uh, the Army Corps has done some climate change analysis and we're continuing to do that. But there is a large margin or factor of safety built into the system that should carry us through kind of the changing storm scenario as well as sea level rise. 
Um, but we're continuing to inject that into our planning as we look at this project, as well as other flood risk reduction needs in the Power Valley, which are, are sure to come. Lisa, let me ask you this to uh, take us out here. I mean, we can look back and we can see that we did not have a fair and equitable you know, way of making these decisions and maybe even a functional system. Do we now have the right system in place, given the changes in executive orders, given the increased emphasis on environmental justice, given all these new factors of you know taking into account environmental benefits, not just economic ones? I, yeah, I do. Thank you. I think we're things are definitely trending the right way, and and there there have been improvements over the past decade. The issue is um, funding, is my understanding. You talked to the American Society of Civil Engineers; they gave our levies like a. F, D minus F rating a decade ago. It's now a D. Um, we're getting better. Um, but yeah, we've, as, as Mark referenced, we've got change of climate. We've got stricter environmental regulations. Maintenance is more expensive. Safety standards are more expensive. Construction is more expensive. Um, so yeah, um, we're headed the right direction, but more needs to be done. And, and I'll just add that, that the Army Corps has you know, turned a new leaf here. I mean, they are really right. heading in a, a new direction on this. And so I want to make it abundantly clear that the Army Corps is heading in the right direction now. It just wasn't doing so in the past, and that's affected where we are today. The state has also been, like I said, incredibly supportive of Pajaro, but also multi-benefit quantification, uh, you know, uh, deference to environmental justice issues. So we have the support we need. It's just coming a bit too late. Yeah. Well, and hopefully it stays past one administration as well. Um, we have been talking about the levee break down in Pajaro and the flooding there in that town, as well as maintaining our aging flood control system. Uh, we've been joined by Mark Strudley, executive director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. We've also been joined by Barbara Berrigan Padilla, Executive Director of Restored the Delta. Thanks for joining us, Barbara. Thank you so much. And we've had Lisa Krieger, science writer for the San Jose Mercury News. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. And thanks to listeners for caring. Yeah. And if you want to see more about this issue, look up Lisa's latest story uh, in the Mercury News. It's really, really good. Um, earlier, we talked with Monterey County Supervisor Luis Alejo. I wanted to mention one last time, if you go to kqd.org slash forum and you go to this show, this uh, this link on the show, there's an article about how you can help farm workers down in Pajaro. Uh, Pajaro. It's called Lessons from Pajaro is the name of the story. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.